Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Social Work Journal. I'm your host, Del Tom, and today we are going to discuss the topic impulse. So what is an impulse? Simply put, in layman's term, it's a sudden, strong, and unreflective urge or desire to act. So if we're going to talk about impulsivity, we're going to have to segue into Will Smith's apology address because, you know, we got to stay t- current with those current events, those pop culture references. So Will Smith, he offered an apology to Chris Rock and he was responding to a prompt and he offered that he did not apologize to Chris Rock in his acceptance speech because he was quote unquote fogged out by then and he described the moment as all fuzzy. Essentially, he just acted out on an urge to satisfy his desire at the time for revenge. Now, I'm not saying this is how he felt. I don't know how he felt. But let's just say hypothetically that Will Smith didn't apologize because in the moment he felt justified. So if he had said in his apology address, I didn't apologize in my acceptance speech because I felt at the time I was protecting my wife. Would people be empathetic towards him? I mean, come on, let's think about it. And it's funny because we all have personal struggles with modulating our impulses, but there are some offenses, it seems, that are more morally regulated in society than others. So right now I'm reading this book, The Elephant in the Brain, which explores human behavior, impulses, and essentially it dissects ego psychology, which sidebar, you can hear more about in season three, episode two, narratives. But one of the things they talk about in this book is how we often act out without an understanding of why we act in such a manner and then later attempt to offer an explanation. In tying this back to the Will Smith apology address, I also wonder if people would have been empathetic toward him had his response to the question prompt been, I don't know why I didn't apologize to Chris in my acceptance speech which I think would have been completely reasonable given that he was just acting on impulse. I mean, he literally probably was just having this adrenaline rush at the time that he did this. So how could he have been cognizant of why he was doing it? So as theorized in the elephant in the brain, our behaviors are mediated by what they call or what they theorize collective reinforcement, quote unquote, where we make decisions or change our behaviors to avoid judgment from a group of people. They offer the analogy of a police officer and how a police officer is more likely to provide a ticket to an individual who's drinking an unconcealed bottle of alcohol versus someone who is openly drinking alcohol in a brown paper bag. To kind of explain this whole collective reinforcement theory. So basically what they said was, let's say a cop walks by a person who has an unconcealed bottle of alcohol and they're drinking it. They're more likely to give that person a citation or arrest that person because of the fear of judgment of others. But if they can kind of get away without giving them a citation because the bottle is concealed, they will because the consequences of citing them or arresting them is they're going to have a bunch of paperwork to fill out over a behavior that is relatively unharmful as long as they're not hurting anybody 
while doing so. And you know what? I kind of think that behaviorist theory really explains this even further. I think essentially what they're talking about is behaviorist theory, specifically operant conditioning, which offers that our behavior is modulated by rewards and consequences. And rewards increase behaviors and consequences decrease behaviors. But I digress. That was another sidebar. And don't even let me get into classical conditioning and antecedents because I could go on and on about that forever. Now for links to articles and more discussion about my experience as a behaviorist, because those of you who listen to the podcast know that I was an applied behavior analysis therapist for many years before I became a social worker. You can find out more about my experiences as well as find out more about these articles at thesocialworkjournal.com. And I will be posting the very well mind, what is operant conditioning and how does it work article on there. Just because I love the way that very well mind explains things, I think is great for people who are not in the field of social work or psychology or mental health. It kind of breaks it down for you in a manner that is easier for you to understand. So let's get into the very well mind impulse control and impulse behavior article. And in this article, They discuss some of the risk factors for people with impulse control disorder and impulsive behavior. So in this article, they say that neurological vulnerabilities coupled with environmental stressors are kind of like that secret ingredient to impulse control disorder and impulsive behavior. Now, some of the risk factors of impulsive disorder include being a male. So males are more prone to impulse control disorder than females. I don't know if that's because males have more testosterone. You know, I'm not a medical professional, so I can't say. And then there's the genetic predisposition. So if you are first generation, the descendant of somebody who had a personality disorder, you're more likely to have that disorder. But we'll get into that later. There's also chronic drug use or alcohol use. Now, I would like to further explain that if drug use and alcohol use is the reason why you're engaging in sort of impulsive behavior or you have an impulse control disorder, those symptoms should subside once you seek treatment for the substance or drug use. Okay, also being subjected to trauma, abuse, or neglect. So if you haven't checked out season one, episode one of attachment, this kind of goes into how when you have sort of that disordered, dysregulated, dysfunctional attachment with your initial caregiver giver, that trauma can actually contribute to impulsive disorders. Also exposure to violence or aggression, especially in early development. Taking dopamine agonist medication, such as those described for Parkinson's disease. These are all things that are risk factors for impulse disorders. Now let's get into the signs and symptoms. Behavioral symptoms, stealing, lying, starting fires, risky or promiscuous behavior, and aggressive or volatile behaviors. We are definitely going to talk about that when we get into the DSM-5 disorders. Cognitive symptoms, obsessive behavior, trouble with organization, or executive dysfunction. Now, social and emotional symptoms, low self-esteem, social withdrawal, or isolation, detachment or anxiety, drastic shifts and thoughts and moods and feelings of guilt or regret. And when we talk about low self-esteem, you're going to see some of that 
and the personality disorders. We'll get into that. Let's go ahead and jump into the DSM-5. I keep teasing you guys. So let's talk about the neurodevelopmental disorders. The first one that we are all so commonly acquainted with, I should say, is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, also known as ADHD. If you have ADHD, you probably have some issues with impulsivity. Let's keep it real. So what do these features look like? It can include difficulty paying attention to close detail or sustaining attention, not listening when you're spoken to directly or tuning out. And this is pure the DSM-5. Avoids or disliking activities that require sustained mental effort, like your homework or reviewing lengthy papers. Often loses materials. Oh my goodness, I do this all the time. Required for essential tasks like your keys, your eyeglasses, cell phone, pencils, books. How many of us, you sit something down and then two seconds later, you're like, oh my goodness, where did I put my keys? Where would I put my phone? This is to go without saying that that does not mean that you have ADHD because we can all display some of the symptoms that I'm going to be going over when I talk about these disorders. But if you are displaying a certain number of these symptoms, then per the DSM-5, you meet the criterion for this disorder. Please don't try to self-diagnose yourself, but take it at face value, okay? Easily distracted by extraneous stimuli, like loud noises or thoughts. I have some students that have ADHD, and if somebody walks into the room, they are immediately distracted. That would be kind of an example of someone who is symptomatic. I'm not gonna say they have it, but it's symptomatic of ADHD if they're not able to engage in what we call joint attention, meaning they direct their attention towards the person that walked in the room and then they can easily redirect themselves back to whatever activity they were working on because they're able to prioritize that that activity is far more important than somebody walking in the room. And forgetful of daily activities. I tell people all the time, if it's not in my calendar, it's not happening. So I forget things all the time, but I'm cognizant of finding ways to make sure that I remember things, even if it means setting alarms. So if you have any of these symptoms, just know that you can always overcome them and you can always find ways to compensate. Another example of a neurodevelopmental disorder that a person may engage in impulsivity is stereotypic movement disorder, also known as stemming. At least that's what we call it in ABA therapy. And this is common in individuals with autism. So all stereotypic movement disorder is, is repetitive motor behavior, tapping, body rocking, hand waving, head banging, self biting, and the symptoms are usually onset in early development. This is not a result of substance use and cannot be explained by other disorders, okay? So like I said, you usually see this with individuals who have autism, but it can't be explained by some kind of obsessive compulsive disorder would be a good example of how you can't say someone with OCD has stereotypic movement disorder. No, 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 it's just OCD. Now let's get into the mood disorders. Believe it or not, mood disorders also have implications of impulsivity. So bipolar one and bipolar two disorder, probably some mental health disorders that you may be familiar with. Now let's distinguish the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two disorder. Bipolar one features manic, hypomanic, and major depressive features, okay? Bipolar two features hypomanic and major depressive 
symptoms, okay? So the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two is in bipolar two, you're gonna see more of those major depressive features. You're not going to see manic features. What's the difference between mania and hypomania? When someone has a manic episode, that would indicate that there is a severe marked impairment in functioning, which requires or may require, not every time, but may require hospitalization. When someone is hypomanic, it is a form of mania, but it's less severe. It's not enough to cause marked impairment to their functioning or merit a hospitalization, okay? And mania could include inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, decreased need for sleep. So maybe after three hours, they feel rested, they're ready to go. Increase in goal-directed activity. I think that this is very important because I've had parents who their children may have been diagnosed with a mood disorder and the parents, they think that now they're a mental health expert because they've had some experiences with having their children hospitalized and they talk to some mental health professionals. And so they try to tell me, oh, my child is bipolar. And I ask them, okay, if your child is bipolar, are they organizing in the middle of the night? Are they just coming up with these creative ideas and obsessively trying to execute these ideas and it doesn't matter how much sleep they get or what time it is or if there's something else that's more important to do? Are they kind of engaging in this rapid speech? Because that mania is not just the aggressive outburst. It's across the board, okay? Somebody with bipolar disorder, they might be up in the middle of the night you know alphabetizing books <laughs> so it goes across the board I think that bipolar is one of those words one of those terminologies that's just overused by people who are not mental health professionals and so I'm not giving you information on these disorders for you to go out and self-diagnose or diagnose other people I'm giving you um, information on these disorders so that you are more educated and you will refrain from pathologizing people and pathologizing yourself. Because again, if you don't meet a certain number of criteria in these disorders that I'm kind of describing these features, then you don't qualify for the diagnosis of these disorders, okay? Just a little sidebar, in bipolar disorder, you can have anxious, and stress features and also psychotic features. Now let's get into disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. I have seen this in quite a few of my clients as well as students that I've worked with that have a diagnosis. And what this looks like is basically tantrums or a temperament that's inconsistent with developmental level that occurs on an average of three or more times weekly. You have to be under the age of 18 to have this diagnosis, okay? This is a diagnosis commonly found in males, school-age children. You don't even really see it that much in adolescents, and you see it less in females than you do in males, okay? That's just a little side note there. Now, the behavior has to occur across three or more settings. School, work, home, community, it has to occur across three or more settings or you can't get the diagnosis. And it cannot have what we call comorbidity. That means a co-occurring disorder. So it can't have comorbidity with certain disorders such as oppositional defiant disorder, which we'll get into intermittent explosive disorder or bipolar disorder. Also, 
can't be co-occurring with substance use disorders and major depressive disorders. However, it can coexist or co-occur with conduct disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Believe it or not, a lot of clients that I've worked with that have been diagnosed with conduct disorder or with DMDD may also have a co-occurring diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Okay, so let's talk about obsessive compulsive disorder. There are sort of two factors that kind of make up obsessive compulsive disorder. And you're going to laugh when I say this, okay? First component, obsessions. Second component, compulsions. Hence the term obsessive compulsive disorder. So the obsessions, what does that look like? Intrusive, persistent thoughts, urges, images that are unwanted and cause stress and anxiety. That is the symptom, right? The compulsion is the symptom that is the reaction of the stress and the anxiety from the obsessions. So compulsions, what does that look like? consistent hand washing and I don't mean like you know normal hand washing I'm talking about people who just can't stop washing their hands they are obsessively washing their hands they're obsessively praying counting rigid rule following silently repeating statements to self with an aim to reduce stress and anxiety so remember the compulsions are the means that a person with obsessive compulsive disorder copes with the the obsessions because the obsessions are intrusive and persistent and they're unwanted thoughts, urges, or images. Let's go ahead and get into the disruptive impulse control disorders. Okay. First one, oppositional defiant disorder. We kind of mentioned it earlier, but I'm going to tell you what it is. Just think of someone that's argumentative, especially with authority figures. They're easily annoyed and they deliberately annoy others. So when I think of someone with ODD, because I've also had clients who have a diagnosis of ODD, I think of someone who's kind of, their behavior is menacing. You would think of their behavior as a menacing behavior because they easily get irritated and they kind of enjoy irritating others. And sometimes they kind of enjoy amping themselves up and getting irritated. Now it commonly has a comorbidity of ADHD. So as I said before, it's not uncommon to see someone with ODD with ADHD as well. So intermittent explosive disorder commonly found in children between the ages of 6 and 18 years old. Oppositional defiant disorder, just to go back on that, you got to be under 18. You ain't going to have oppositional defiant disorder past 18. Okay. With intermittent explosive disorder, The behaviors include verbal aggression, tantrums, tirades, physical aggression that does not result in property destruction or harm in individuals or animals. It occurs two times weekly within a three-month period. All those behaviors that I mentioned with the exception of property destruction or harm in individuals or animals. Now, in the event that there is destruction of property or physical aggression that leads to injury or harm of individuals or animals, That occurs in a 12-month period. So I would say if we were to compare intermittent explosive disorder to DMDD, which we talked about earlier, basically they're pretty similar. And I actually had a client where they listed their diagnosis as co-occurring. DMDD 
and intermittent explosive disorder cannot be co-occurring but the symptoms are similar what distinguishes them is with intermittent explosive disorder it's less frequent the behaviors that you're seeing so that's why they said all those behaviors except the physical aggression will occur twice weekly for three months or you could see some of that physical aggression and injury of animals and individuals in a 12-month period it's not as frequent as dmdd now let's talk about conduct disorder this can be found in children under the age of 10 okay it can be found in children over the age of 10 but you will not find conduct disorder in individuals that are 18 and older if they're 18 and older now what we're checking for is for antisocial personality disorder not all the time but many times conduct disorder is the pipeline to antisocial personality disorder which we're going to talk about right after this now what is conduct disorder what do those behaviors look like bullying threatening intimidating others initiating physical fights cruelty to animals kleptomania pyromania which was kind of mentioned in that very well mind article i mean come on now shallow affect by shallow affect that means the person does not show emotions or feelings or their emotions or feelings seem insincere or superficial when they express them so they kind of have this shallow emotional expression and they're unconcerned about their performance if you're in school you know you need to get good grades in order to go on to the next grade level something like that is not as meaningful with a person with conduct disorder and i have worked with clients with a diagnosis of conduct disorder i haven't too much worked with clients with that shallow affect i think maybe just one or two it's kind of rare when you're getting into that realm but conduct disorder pipeline to antisocial personality disorder which we're about to discuss but before we get into that topic now we're going to have a word from our sponsors so today's episode was graciously sponsored by curls and coils literary solutions founded by miss chandra scott if you reside or will be traveling to the dmv area on september 10th of this calendar year curls and coils literary solutions will be hosting the fix your crown self-care brunch where you can expand your self-care journey while enjoying chicken and waffles and bottomless mimosas at the wacky waffles cafe on 40 north streeper street in baltimore maryland tickets are for sale at 55 dollars get your tickets now do not hesitate or procrastinate as you cannot purchase your tickets at the door I highly suggest you attend this event if you're in the area. As Chandra puts it, this self-care brunch will be a vibe for relaxation, communication, networking, great food, interactive activities, healing, awareness, and more. And then I mentioned there's going to be food and drinks, trivia games, panel discussions, Q&A, door prizes, vendors, and swag bags. I'm telling you, you've got to head on down there. They're going to have panelists, which include health and wellness specialists, social workers, Jerry Cotman, Jamira Dunn, Naima Staggs, and Miss Chandra Scott herself. Again, 
The Fix Your Crown Brunch will be held in Baltimore, Maryland on September 10th. Tickets are on sale on Eventbrite, and I'm going to post the link in the description of this podcast. The tickets are $55. You can also go to www.curlscoils.net for more information. And when you attend, tell them that the Social Work Journal podcast sent you. So let's get into antisocial personality disorder, which will get us to our whole purpose for talking about impulsivity. What are the symptoms? Pervasive pattern or disregard or violation of others. So they see people as objects and seeing people as objects is also found in narcissistic personality disorder. A failure to conform to social norms and respect or observe laws. Deceitfulness and use of aliases for profit or personal pleasure. Impulsive and fails to plan ahead. Irritability and physical aggression consistent irresponsibility so typically people with antisocial personality disorder they can't hold a job lack of remorse or being indifferent about hurting someone so remember in that conduct disorder we're talking about the shallow affect that leads to a lack of remorse about hurting others later on in life because if you don't have those emotions and you're not in touch with those emotions later in life as you develop further now there's just a lack of being able to have remorse because you don't experience empathy there is evidence of conduct disorder onset by the age of 15 in someone who has antisocial personality disorder or is diagnosed with it okay so this leads me to the story of god with morgan freeman i don't know if you guys have seen that docuseries but you got to check it out It was season one, episode five. Why does the devil exist? Literally, quote unquote, they call it, why does the devil exist? Now, before I get into talking about this episode, if you are under the age of 18 and you're listening to this podcast, you might want to stop and maybe not listen to it without a parent. And I'm going to be cognizant of the language that I use because I don't want this to get too dark, but I want us to really explore what impulsivity looks like on the extreme far. I don't know if you want to say left or right, I guess the extreme form of the spectrum of impulsivity control disorder. Okay. So in this episode, Morgan Freeman, he visits this inmate and he interviews him. And this inmate in particular has been in and out of jail since he was a teenager. And he started initially with stealing. Okay. And then later he began engaging in assaulting victims. And then at 27, he, that later led to kidnapping and for lack of better terms, murder. All right. So Morgan Freeman asked this inmate, why did he do what he did? Okay. Because he was a serial killer and that's why he's been in prison for 30 years. And the inmate, he responded by saying that he didn't plan any of it and that he was just driven by his desire. So this is what he said, quote unquote, this, these are his words. He said, it was a spur of the moment thing. I didn't have a plan to go out and snatch anybody, commit any S violence against anybody. I had a desire, an impulse, and I wasn't able to stop myself from acting on that impulse. And then he says that he doesn't see emotions like everyone else. He doesn't feel. 
Okay. So the psychologist who was present during the time of the interview was kind of given an overview of statistics. And he said that this inmate was in the 99th percentile score of psychopathy. Now, psychopathy is not a diagnosis. I know some people use the term, they say, oh, such and such is a psychopath. Okay, that's not a diagnosis. That's a characteristic of antisocial personality disorder. Okay, now this individual, this inmate, he was statistically classified by the psychologist as one in a million. So that means his disorder and his level of impulsivity is so rare that he is almost like one in a million. So let's go on with this interview. Morgan Freeman, he asked the inmate, would he want to leave the prison if he could get him out? Dun, dun, dun. And what did the inmate say? He stated, I'd want to go, but since I did commit those crimes, I still have that capacity. I don't have the same controls as you do or someone else. And then he said society would not be safe. Now, Morgan Freeman ends this sort of segment by saying after the interview that the man is quote unquote evil personified. Okay. Now I think it's important to note that classifying someone as evil is a little, um, I don't know. I, I just think it lacks uh, subjectivity. Okay. Now, then Morgan Freeman states that neuroscientists say that this inmate's behavior is a result of bad neural wiring. But then Morgan Freeman goes on to question. He says, but the question is, even so, does he not still have a choice? Can he choose not to commit a heinous crime? To answer Morgan Freeman, I would say, and let's look at this objectively now, when you're dealing with an outlier or an anomaly, such as this inmate, okay? You can choose to assign a moral standard, but you'll never be able to reach an understanding of that outlier if you're comparing it to a norm. So um, basically what I'm saying is this, okay? You can't compare this man to everyday people and then try to understand why he doesn't ascribe to the moral code that we do. Because I think that the way that he described his behaviors and how he said that, you know, I would like to go back out into society, but I still have that capacity and I don't feel like you feel. That is reflective. That was very self-reflective of him. And people with antisocial personality disorder, as you can see from the DSM-5 symptoms that they list as part of their criterion, people with antisocial personality disorder typically don't self-reflect. They're too impulsive. They have a cognitive impairment and clearly this man, his lack of empathy was due to his cognitive impairment, which is why he's unable to modulate his emotions and self-regulate his impulses. And I think as a society, it's hard for us to empathize with a person who doesn't empathize with others' emotions, you know, or who doesn't have remorse for doing something harmful to someone else. Because we naturally, even though we might engage in impulsivity, we feel guilt, we feel remorse afterwards because we're able to cognitively process. We have that cognitive process to go back and self-reflect and be insightful and say, hmm, 
gosh, the way that I acted toward that person, that wasn't right. And I hurt them. We're able to do that. But someone who has a disorder, especially a personality disorder, they lack insight and they're unable to access that level of cognitive processing where they can self-reflect in that manner. I think what we can learn from this discussion is to extend our empathy to others because we all act on our impulses. And although some of these acts are more socially acceptable than others, we still all engage in behaviors that hurt other people in an attempt to fulfill our desires. So that's all I have for you guys today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And as always, take care. And until next time, bye-bye.